Hey friends, before we jump into today's sponsors for this episode, I wanna take a minute to tell you a little bit about the Access Fund. We are in the giving season right now, and if you have the means, if you have extra cash, this is a really great time to support the Access Fund. Here's the deal. Every day, developers are gobbling up more of our open spaces. Public lands are under constant threat from industry and from mining, and the climbing landscapes that we love are caught in the crossfire. As climbers, it's up to us to protect the outdoor climbing experience and to protect the lands we love, and the Access Fund is here to help. From December 5th to the 19th, Black Diamond is going to match all individual contributions to the Access Fund, up to $80,000. So there's never been a better time to vote with your dollars and support the Access Fund than right now. So if you have a little extra cash and want to help out, that would be totally awesome. Anything you can give is worth it and will help out for sure. You can donate to the Access Fund and double your contribution at accessfund.org slash donate. Once again, that's accessfund.org slash donate or click on the link right there in your podcast app to support the Access Fund. Protect the climbing spaces you love by supporting the Access Fund. This episode is brought to you by Crimped. This might be the best tool in the app store when it comes to training for rock climbing. Here's the deal. The Crimped app gives you access to 75 different workouts created by world-class climbers and coaches, Tom Randall and Ollie Tor of Lattice Training. And it's free to try. So you can download the app right now and see if you like it. And if you want even more training power, if you try Crimped for free and you love it, consider signing up for Crimped Plus. Crimped Plus unlocks three main things. First off, instead of the 75 workouts you get with the free version, you will have access to over 200 workouts and progressions. Secondly, with Crimped Plus, you can create your own custom training plans right there in the app. That's an awesome thing if you wanna piece together your own training plan that's right for you based on everything that you've learned from this podcast. And finally, the third thing, you'll unlock a collection of skill templates designed to bootstrap your training and focus on specific areas of improvement. For example, if you wanna improve your finger strength or if you wanna get more flexible or conquer the one-arm pull-up, well, guess what? There's a skill template for each of those things and many more that will take you by the hand and guide you through the process. So check out Crimped. Go to crimped.com or download the Crimped app for free from the App Store and consider signing up for Crimped Plus. Crimped, training on your own has never been easier. This episode is also brought to you by Fizzy Vantage, now the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Fizzy Vantage is the leading brand in climbing nutrition. And just to name a few names, their pro athlete team includes Matt Foltz, Paige Klassen, Drew Ruana, Jonathan Segrist, Natalia Grossman, Melina Costanza, Brittany Gorris, Jordan Cannon, Katie Lambert, Jamie Webb, and Daniel Woods. The list goes on and on, basically the who's who of high performance rock climbing. They are all using Fizzy Vantage products. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage yourself, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout and save 15% off any full-priced nutrition product. That's fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off your order. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is Stephen Dimmitt. And my guest today is Todd Perkins. Todd is one of those local legends who you've probably never heard of unless you've climbed in the St. George area in Utah. Todd is awesome. He is a sport climber and route developer and guide. 
And he has been climbing and bolting routes in this area since the 90s. And he's one of those people that's always at the cliff, replacing bolts, fixing stuff, cleaning roots, putting up new roots, climbing himself, climbing really hard. He just loves it. He's a total lifer and he's given a lot back to the sport of climbing. And Todd is just an awesome human. I haven't known him very long, but I'm very fortunate to be able to call him a friend now. And this was a really fun excuse to sit down and learn a lot more about his life and get to know him a little better and hear some great stories. Todd's also a badass. He climbed his first 514 when he was about 25 years old. He's 50 years old now and is still climbing 514. He's been at that level for about 25 years. And that is something I was excited to talk about as well. How has he had such great climbing longevity? And his answer was really beautiful and really surprising to me. So I loved this conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it as well. And with that, let's jump in. Please enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Todd Perkins. Any questions for me before we just dive into this thing? Uh, no, not really. I'm good. Cool. Yeah, hey, I can't think of anything. Have you ever recorded a podcast before? No. All right. Yeah. One more thing. The mic, try to not have the foam thing touch your fabric because it'll like yeah, yeah. make some noises and stuff. Okay. Um, I thought we could start with pancakes. Yes. And Todd Perkins pancake oh. beta. You have some of the best beta for... Oh, making yeah. pancakes, not making pancakes, but how you eat pancakes is kind of brilliant. And I should probably back up a couple steps because um, just to frame this whole thing. So you were actually, believe it or not, like one of the first guest rec- uh, guest requests for the podcast. And it was Charlie. Mm-hmm. I was here in 2020, like in February or March, right after launching the podcast. Mm-hmm. And Charlie, you know, a good friend of mine, friend of yours, we were climbing together yesterday. Um, he's like, you should have Todd Perkins on the show. And I didn't know who you were at the time. And I didn't know anything about St. George. Um, maybe saw you at the Wailing Wall that season, but was like, mm-hmm. okay, like this guy's like one of those local legends, you know? Uh, now fast forward two years and I'm renting a room at your house for a month <laughs> that I'm here. So it's been really fun to get to know you a little bit. Yeah, I like And this. fun to finally be doing this. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I've been living with you in your house, have observed you eating pancakes a couple times now. <laughs> More than a couple. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Tell me your pancake eating beta. Ah, uh, well, you gotta have them fresh. You gotta have them hot, right? So I pull a stool up to the counter, and just as soon as I got them off the grill, I am chowing down on it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Off the skillet, straight into the mouth. Oh yeah. I was oh, sitting yeah. at your kitchen table. This is why it came up because I was sitting at your kitchen table working, and you have like Todd. Like, there's like Todd's spot at the kitchen table where you always sit and eat food, and I was in your spot, and I was just like, "Oh, I'm so sorry." And you're like, "Oh, actually, I always eat pancakes over here." You're like sitting like <laughs> two feet away from the skillet. Yeah, can't let them get cold, man. Is that the thing? It's the yeah. hotter the better. Yeah, just uh, especially like uh, I put blueberries in them, and if the blueberries are like just hot and kind of melting under the syrup, it's just exquisite. <laughs> <laughs> what do you like to put on your pancakes? Oh gosh, chia seeds, hemp seeds, pecans, uh, blueberries, pomegranates if I have them. Wow. Just kind of like whatever's in the fridge. Yeah. Kind of thing to a certain degree. What's the base? Is it like a Bizquick sort of thing or something fancy? No, uh, I think it's Pamela's almond meal. 
pancakes. Pamela's almond flour. Almond yeah. flour pancakes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, damn good. Nice. Damn good. But yeah, if you're uh, like looking for gluten free, I don't think it uh, fits that bill. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, the hotter the better. Um, it's such a bachelor way to eat pancakes, I think. You know, <laughs> like you can have a family sitting around the, the stovetop eating pancakes. But if you're listening and you're solo out there, or it probably works great in a van. Just yeah. uh, sitting right next to the stove and eating pancakes as they are finished one at a time. Uh-huh. Is uh-huh. The beta. I mean, it takes some, like, kitchen management skills, of course, right? Any tips there? Oh, just don't get distracted by anything. Your pancakes will burn, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, yeah, you gotta have the plate right next to the pan. Uh-huh. Constant observation. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I want to hear more about your evolution personally growing up here as a kid in the Mormon church, I think that's really interesting. And I know climbing's a big part of your personal growth and evolution and shift. Mm-hmm. Um, what was St. George like back in the day? That's something I'm really <laughs> curious about, both the climbing community here yeah. and just as a, you know, as a, as a town, as a place, as a culture. Um, sure. Tell me about your upbringing a little bit. Oh yeah, uh, definitely born right into the Mormon religion. My dad was a Mormon bishop. Uh, I don't, Mom, I didn't know that actually. President, yeah. My yeah. dad worked in the church office building in uh, Salt Lake City uh, as an accountant, and uh, he was sent to to assess the cost of building uh, missions and, or uh, like temples and church buildings in uh, foreign missions all over the world. So, yeah, we were, we were pretty deep into it, man. We were definitely um, uh, brainwashed from birth, I like to say. <laughs> but, uh, for me, a big part of it, uh, part of being able to kind of look at it more uh, from a third-person perspective and step away from it um, came from the sadness and uh, terrible situation. My parents getting divorced mm. when I was about 11, mm. separated about then, divorce was final around 13 or 14. So uh, just to see kind of the the ways in which our family was treated differently because uh, at that time, at least, divorce was frowned upon sure. by the mainstream church. Right. And uh, if you couldn't work it out, there was something wrong with you spiritually and you you know, would, were definitely looked down upon. Um, so there was that, that little spark right there kind of started, well, how godly is this and how righteous is this if... Uh, you know, a little bit of turmoil in someone's personal life can turn uh, an entire community against you. Mm. And uh, and also um, smoking marijuana, actually. It's a, a huge mind opener right there. Um, it's kind of falsely portrayed as something that is a, a gateway drug to all the other, like, evils of drugs and dependency that can happen but in my mind it's more of a gateway drug to opening your mind to other ways of thinking uh it makes you step outside of yourself and uh everything that you've been taught and shown there before and be able to see it from a more oh enlightened perspective mm-hmm. and uh and not be so involved with the uh, shame and guilt and uh, and fear that comes from from doing that, um, because you're taught from birth 
that there's this path you have to take. And if you don't take that path, of course, it's, you know, heaven or hell. So, you know, pretty, pretty simple right there. And, and I think just having that perspective, uh, being able to step away from it and look at it from an area of, of grayness, not so black and white, and to know that uh, it's, it's not the only path out there. Um, I definitely don't disparage any of my Mormon friends who are still within it and happy and uh, have a great life within it. That's awesome. But I, and I do appreciate all the good lessons that I was taught, you know, the whole golden rule thing. It's just absolutely essential to living your life as a good human being. Mm. But all the other kind of hocus pocus stuff and, uh, and the deification of individuals, uh, I think it really opened my eyes at that time to know that uh, we, we place way too much stock in these individuals who become prophets or leaders or hmm. um, of any kind of any kind of organization or uh, so it helped me see that everybody has faults and flaws and uh, shouldn't just be taken for you know the grand glorious poobah that they're portrayed to be. Hmm. Um, kind of like the emperor has no clothes kind of thing. It helps you open your eyes to that possibility in, in anybody. And it helped me see that the more like people take themselves too seriously, then I kind of like step back from that and, and try to distance myself from that, that person or that situation. This is really interesting because I was actually hoping to ask you about cannabis and your relationship with it. Um, because it is a big part of your life. And for people listening, Todd has a medical card, so don't freak out because <laughs> we're in Utah. Chronic pain, chronic pain. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was interesting to me because I kind of buy this theory that people kind of naturally find whatever sort of uh, medicine they need, you know, like based on who they are, their brain chemistry, whatever. Like, I really think that's, why people end up finding whatever uh, coping mechanisms or, or um, enjoyments or passions or whatever. It's it's like balancing them out or giving something that they need. And that can have healthy expressions and unhealthy expressions. I just think it's all very interesting. Um, for me, you know, I've lived in the Northwest for a long time. I've smoked weed many times and I enjoy it, but it's just never done much for me, you know? And this is absolutely not like a holier than thou thing. I don't care. I think cannabis is great, but I just think it's interesting that like, for whatever reason, I've never had that like, oh, this is so great. I want to do this more often sort of reaction to it. Sure. What do you, th but I mean, hearing you describe all that, it kind of answered the question I have, which is what does it do for you? Like, why do you think it is that um, it feels like such a positive addition to your life? Like, what does it, what does it do for your well, brain? I think, or for, uh, your... for me growing up, I was, I was a pretty hyper kid, you know, I was pretty, uh, really full of energy, just like literally climbing the walls. And uh, I'm glad I found climbing <laughs> before I climbed too high without ropes. But uh, I think uh, it just helps me relax. It helps me take myself less seriously. It helps take, uh, helps me take the whole situation that I'm in at the moment less seriously. And, uh, and, and yeah, by and large, like, uh, Physiologically, I think I just have responded to it initially. Like I know 
it's definitely not for everybody. Uh, everybody has different chemistries, body chemistries, and emotional uh, abilities to deal with this and that. And yes, definitely not for everybody. But from the first, it was just like this awakening. Uh, my mood was lifted and lightened. Uh, you know, just that stereotypical giggly funny everything's funny everything's fun everything's uh, enjoyable kind of feeling and i know many friends who didn't have that you know friends who tried it and were immediately nauseous and mm. and sick and overwhelmed and uh, anxiety you know ridden so yeah it's definitely not like a cure-all uh, you kind of have to find your own things in life what you respond to personally but yeah for me and especially as i get older chronic pain like the end of a long day climbing. I've had both hips replaced, multiple surgeries, mm. uh, arthritis, you know, a lot of problems going on. And it just like completely relaxes and settles all that down um, so that I can get good, you know, long night's sleep. That's mm. kind of like the the major thing for me now, nowadays. You know, the, the whole giggly, fun, funny stuff is has passed. And that's <laughs> that's good. I don't want to be too too out of control, but... Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's good medicine. And if you go on, uh, I think it's PubMed. It's like the largest online resource for peer-reviewed published research papers uh, throughout the world, not just the U.S. You'll find over 20,000 uh, peer-reviewed research papers on the medicinal effects of cannabis, positive mm -hmm. effects of cannabis. You know, contrast that with ibuprofen. You know, there's maybe mm. six or 7,000 studies on there. So, I mean, actually a lot more research has been done. That's a myth, completely, completely a myth that, you know, more research needs to be done. Uh, the research has been done and it's out there. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of positive effects for it. Um, I guess the question is just what's your mode of delivery and, and how much and when and, and why, and, and all of that is personal. Mm -hmm. And it may not may not you know be that effective for you personally, but yeah, you got to find it. Do you want to tell me about solar powered weed smoking? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're referring to a device igniter, perhaps. <laughs> I think I am. Yeah. Will you describe that? <laughs> well, um, so it's pretty brilliant. There's a there's um there's an effect that I've noticed from having smoked for a long time of. Uh, a big difference between using a lighter and then using other incendiary devices hmm. and the effects that it has on your lungs. And uh, I've noticed that uh, just uh, using a lighter imparts a lot of uh, butane mm -hmm. ingestion. And you research the effects of that and you've got lung cancer, dementia, Alzheimer's, tinnitus, all kinds of negative effects of butane ingestion. So whenever I can, I try to use something else, you know, like a, a hemp wick, light that first and then use it. Or ideally on a sunny day, use a magnifying glass. If you're ever one of those evil little kids that tried to burn insects or <laughs> leaves, <laughs> you know how it works. Uh, but yeah, it's just pure solar power from the sun. Uh, and actually, I think it's cigar connoisseurs uh, use it as well. It's oh, like, really? Yeah, really clean way to light the cigar and uh, judge the flavors of the tobacco from that and, and not have any effects of whatever incendiary device you're using to, hmm. to get it going. So yeah, it's really clean, uh, the organic method for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I love it. It makes perfect sense. You just keep a magnifying glass and your climbing bag and all your other several, yeah, yeah several. several. <laughs> Have them stashed around. Yep. Yep. There's a lot of sun in Utah, so uh huh. Three hundred days of sunshine. Great here. strategy. Okay, how did you get into climbing? Uh, so I was one of those kids, like I mentioned, I was always being told to get down from there. I used to like <laughs> chimney up the hallways in our house and get stuck at the ceiling. <laughs> and none of my family members were tall enough to reach me. They'd get a ladder or pilot pillows or get the neighbor who was over six feet who could reach me and bring me down. So uh, I was just drawn to it, I think, just from, I don't know, just it just drew me in fundamentally somehow. And then uh, growing up here in Southern Utah, Everywhere you look, all you see is rocks. So that's all we were doing is just wandering around the desert trying to climb rocks, get to the top of this or that formation. And I remember when I was 17, this is like, you know, the 80s. So there's there are no climbing gyms in the country, hardly, maybe one or two, but they're like back east. And uh, so there's really no introduction to it unless you ran into somebody who knew about it, right? There's a little bit in the media, you know, a couple of like, James Bond movies, I'd seen some climbing action, but uh, I was way into it. And I went to an outdoor shop in Salt Lake City and I was either gonna buy a, climb, a pair of climbing shoes or a, a new backpack for backpacking. And I looked at the climbing shoes and I'm like, there's no tread on these. There's like, they're really uncomfortable. How am I supposed to run across the desert and climb rocks in these things? So I bagged <laughs> the pair of climbing shoes, not knowing anything about it, mm -hmm. bought the backpack. Um, so I would just buy like tight fitting running shoes so I could run around and uh, have some grip on, on the rock. When just I scrambling every Free solo stuff. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I became, you know, really good at chas awareness, uh -huh. right? Yeah. Uh -huh. Try not to use those holds that you know are going to break and use the ones that look solid. So that was really helpful. And I was really, really lucky. Didn't t have any major falls. Had, had some things happen, but was able to kind of drop and roll and get out of it. Oh my gosh. We were always you know, like trying to be stuntmen growing up, you know, jumping off the roof onto the trampoline and uh -huh. all the crazy kids, uh, stuff kids do. But, uh, but yeah, uh, so a buddy of mine, Dave Bywater, if you're listening, I love you, brother. He, uh, I went to high school with him and uh, in a little bit of college. His dad was a ranger in the Tetons every summer. And so he learned from the exit mountain guides all the, all the ropes one summer. And he came back I think after our senior year of high school and started teaching the friend group all, everything that he'd learned. And uh, I remember that first time I actually climbed on a rope, I was way more scared than any of the free soloing that I'd done you know, previously. Hmm. Because it was, you know, of course, steeper and there was a chance I could fall, right? When you're free soloing, you try to like make sure you're not going to fall. Mm -hmm. And I actually fell a couple of times on the rope and it was just like this big kind of shocking realization that, oh my God, you can fall and it's okay. And I got to the top of the climb. He was top belaying. It was kind of a, a big one. Um, and he said my face was just white getting into the little cave that I was climbing up there because I was pretty scared. But I sat down, kind of took a look around and and I just like had this like flood of like emotional love for this activity coming over me. Went home, spent all my student loan money on climbing gear and... <laughs> And yeah, that's that's how it started. Where were you climbing that day? Uh, I was in Snow Canyon State Park, and that's you know where we we basically started. And uh, first couple of years, did most of our climbing because um, when we started, there were only 
It was the Virgin River Gorge, like some Salt Lake guys and California guys had started to bolt that already in the late 80s. This was like 89 when I started. For people listening that don't know the geography of this area, St. George is like an hour away from the VRG. We're in the very like southwest corner of Utah. So two hours from Vegas, right next to VRG. And now there's tons of crags all around here. And St. George has become like a sport climbing, I guess, and trad climbing destination with Zion. But um, yeah, and that was the other choice, Zion, mm. Snow Canyon. There's a few routes in the VRG. So it was kind of a big jump going from the VRG or going from Snow Canyon down to the VRG. I bet. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> but it was a steep learning curve, man. You're just yeah. like, push me in the deep end, teach me how to swim kind of thing. That's cool. And like I said, I mean, now, so when I, when I started the podcast or right before that, I think I first heard about St. George from Charlie because he was, you know, he he's done a really similar thing as what I've done, moving into a van, traveling on the road. He loves sport climbing. So um, I've kind of chased Charlie, you know, he like goes around and tries out all these different zones and tells me how awesome St. George is. And I didn't really know anything about it. It wasn't on my radar at all. I was imagining sandstone, um, which there is sandstone here, but, you know, just knowing that it was in Utah, I had been to Moab and climbed it like Mill Creek and I had been to Zion and um, just imagined that it was all sandstone. Fast forward a few years, having spent some time here and explored, there's so much amazing limestone around here um, in all different shapes and sizes from the VRG and the Grail to the Hurricane, which is totally different than anything else I've ever seen. And like I said earlier, all these places I've checked out, Todd Perkins FA, you know, like Todd Perkins bolted this or you know, you bolted it and then Joe Kinder like came back and ended up doing it or vice versa. And it's just, it's been really fun. So um, how did you first get into root development and what was the climbing, what did the climbing look like around here at that time? So it was pretty early on. Like I said, I, my first time on a rope was like uh, late 89, early 90, um, 1990 that is. And, uh, there wasn't much around. Uh, and, you know, having, you know, been pretty adventurous um, before then, I'd done a lot of mountain biking and hiking, so I'd seen the area and I knew that there was a ton of rock, ton of rock everywhere. So within like a year of uh, starting climbing, uh, myself and a couple of friends took it on ourselves to, to start putting up routes because there was really not much to climb, right? We weren't good enough yet to go to the VRG and uh, uh, trad climbing. It was while it was fun. I I wasn't that into the adventure aspect of it and the painfulness of jamming into cracks. Uh, I really liked the sport climbing aspect of you know variety of movements and types of holds and steepness of the rock. And so I started seeking that out more. Um, so. Yeah, the first couple of climbs we bolted, um, we didn't really have, you know, it's just buddies of mine that did construction. <laughs> so we would all these big gas-powered generators, you no know, way. out like a half a mile to the rim of a canyon, <laughs> <laughs> super heavy, and then get like a, you know, 100, 200 foot extension cord and hang that over the top of the cliff <laughs> to bolt these routes. <laughs> uh, and some of these are really obscure limestone crags out on the Arizona Strip that still don't see much uh, much traffic. 
Mm-hmm. So we kind of practiced there. And then I started uh, borrowing a drill from good friend Jorge Visser, who's also like, you know, the grandfather of St. George sport climbing. Just so grateful of that guy for exposing to me. Exposing, uh, he didn't expose himself to me. No, let me rephrase that. <laughs> <laughs> he exposed me to uh, all kinds of different types of climbing. Um, and he was like trying to be a photographer. So he uh, ingratiated himself to all the pros who would come through and climb with the VRG. And so I was able to meet a lot of them. And I was in on like a lot of the early climbing in Clark Mountain and some other areas that were being developed. And so I I was lucky enough to be exposed to these characters like Randy Levitt, who is just like an amazing, an amazing like uh, figure in climbing history, right? And so I learned a lot of bolting techniques and uh, tactics from him and Jorge. And uh, so I count myself really lucky then, and I would borrow Jorge's drill a lot to go and uh, and uh, start bolting a lot of the cliffs around St. George. When did, so, so now, like when you think of, or when I think of St. George, of course, BRG, um, but there's some other like big hitters, you know, that come to the top of the list just from, the routes that have, you know, been put up there, the way they've been presented in the media, whatever. But the Hurricane gets a lot of action these days. And I'm sure that's evolved a lot. You know, I've heard all the stories of what it looked like when it first started getting bolted. No one thought anyone would ever climb there. But then, you know, you've got like the Finn Cave out in the Utah Hills and the Wailing Wall and the Cathedral and areas like that. Were you part of the discovery of any of these places or were people already, did people kind of know that they were there? Uh, so Wailing Wall, yeah, that, uh, like a few little routes had been uh, bolted there, but no climbing. Like a lot of these Salt Lake guys had discovered these places like Black and Tan, uh, the Wailing Wall, and had put in a couple of routes but never really went back. Mm. Um, so... I was able to kind of stumble into that scene and uh, and kind of rebolt a lot of these old projects that were just abandoned, and then add a bunch of my a bunch of new new ones. Um, but yeah, there's a bunch of places that I've been able to be in on the first few routes and and kind of pioneer the pioneer the crags as well, like Sunset Alley and uh, Dutchman's Draw, and yeah bunch of other places but cathedral probably in the wailing wall took up a good chunk of my my life mm. yeah definitely poured a lot of energy into those places yeah i was gonna ask you like which of all the different areas you've spent time at or invested energy into which ones feel like the biggest chapters or the most kind of um influential i guess crags or you know like i imagine that with the cathedral, like you must have grown so much as a route developer, but also as a climber in putting so much energy into the routes up there. Is that, does that feel like one of the bigger chapters for you? Yeah, definitely cathedral for sure. Yeah. It was like a home away from home for a lot of years. Mm. We uh, spent like a good long decade there and we always wondered if, you know, anybody else would ever climb out here in this lonely <laughs> spot. <laughs> Who's we and when was this? Uh, my uh, ex, Leah was her name. Still is her name. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, we we uh, spent a lot of time out there. We'd camp out there, did a lot of bolting out there. Um, just, yeah, banged my head against the wall on all those projects until eventually busted most of them out. Um, 
through a lot of like setbacks and hardships for sure. But yeah, I think that was probably the, probably the main, you know, besides like the VRG first 10 years of my climbing life, just going down there and mm. every season and yeah, trying to do all those routes. Didn't you have some like big second ascents of, of routes there? Uh, not, you know, within the first five ascents, okay. for sure. Yeah, a lot of them. Um, but what were some of the highlights for you? Oh gosh, uh, my first Planet Earth was pretty amazing. Process that was awesome. What is that one? That is uh, that's a a fourteen A Randy Levitt route down there. Uh, like I say, like being able to climb with these guys and uh, going to Clark Mountain and the VRG. Uh, like back and forth. Um, I really progressed rapidly and we had a bouldering gym in town. So um, when I met Jorge and Randy, I had just done my first 12A. Two years later, I did Planet Earth. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's just how obsessed I was. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And they all thought I, thought I was going to be like the next big thing, like the up and comer, right? But uh -huh. I kind of plateaued there. <laughs> it's been about 25 years. Well, that, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, there, there's a couple things there. Like, that's amazing progress or trajectory from 12A to 14A. So, you know, it, yeah, I can see why they would expect you to be the, you know, the next Chris Sharma, whatever. Um, <laughs> well, he hadn't come along. He yet. hadn't come along. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as him and Tommy Caldwell came along. And, you know, these were projects that most of us were, you know, having to spend like two to three months on uh -huh. to, to succeed. They were doing them on their second try. Wow, and so we were just like kind of blown away, like, "Oh, this is this is what elite rock climbing is." Okay, mm. okay, we're just kind of chuffing here. <laughs> Do you have any favorite Chris Sharma stories? Because you've mentioned him a few times, just telling stories like around the kitchen table or whatever. And yeah. you're not a name dropper, like you're not the type of person that's like, "Oh yeah, I was climbing with Sharma and blah blah blah." No, you just happen to have been there for all of these things. And of course, you know, Chris is like a teenager, just smoking a lot of weed and climbing really hard yeah there's gotta be some kid. there's gotta be some stories there but yeah anything that comes to mind that you'd be willing to share uh i was just telling this last night uh, to a buddy that i was climbing with when we were driving home but i was just bolting dutchman's draw um just started putting up a route called the fossil of man and uh, i had a rope up on it and i was trying to figure out the moves and everything and chris was here trying to do necessary evil uh, he was like 15, um, and it was on a rest day, and the whole crew came out to kind of check out Dutchman's Draw in that tower, and uh, there's a bunch of bouldering up the canyon, and so we gave him the tour, and the whole day, Chris is like, oh, this looks so good, oh, this looks amazing, I want to try it, I want to climb it, you know, and I was top roping my project on the tower, and he's like, oh my God, can I try? But everybody around him, all his, his crew was like, no, man, you got to rest today, you got to rest. And they were successful. They kept him from from trying anything that day, and he sent necessary evil the next day. <laughs> so it was good. But then my buddy was like, you know, he probably could have climbed anyway that day, and he probably would have sent anyway. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, you're probably right. We we had no idea just how strong that kid was. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was a fun day. It how was, old were you at the time? Uh, so I'm like ten years older. So I was like okay. twenty five. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Gotcha. I know we're bouncing all over the place here, but I mean, you know, too too bad to hear that you're climbing somewhat plateaued. I mean, I know you've climbed some 14Bs, so you did improve after that, but 
The thing that's so impressive is that you climbed 14A at 25. How old are you now? Uh, 50. 50. Okay. So 25 years of maintaining that level, if not continuing to improve little bits along the way, which is, I think, what all of us hope to do, you know? Like, everyone listening to this wants to improve at climbing, but I think, at least for me, like, something that's become a lot more interesting to me in the last handful of years, um, having, I think, I think it takes having, like, gone through some ups and downs in your climbing, you know? Like, for the first decade, I was just kind of, like, slowly and steadily improving, So you just think like, oh my God, how high am I going to get, you know? And then you have some dips and some, you know, injuries, setbacks, whatever. And it kind of helps you appreciate how fragile this whole thing is and how easily climbing can go away. And it makes me want to, it makes me a lot more interested in being able to climb, you know, 14A for the next 25 years, hopefully like you, rather than burning too hot and too bright and, you know, pushing too hard and burning myself out or injuring myself or whatever. Sure. What would you credit that kind of longevity to? I mean, I've seen you, you take care of yourself really well, but what have been some of the things that have helped you keep your body in such great shape? And, um, cause you climbed 14B this summer, didn't you? Yeah. Yep. That's so awesome. Thanks. Still crushing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Trying to crush it and not be crushed by it. That's for sure. But as you mentioned, I think, yeah, a big part of it is just uh, that sense of gratitude, being able to, hmm. uh, from like multiple surgeries and injuries and uh, having to start over many times, just having that sense of gratitude that I'm still able to do this um, and make that kind of the central point of the whole activity um, and not really make it so goal-oriented or time-oriented or uh, achievement-oriented, but just to try to step back from all of that and just be grateful that I'm still able to walk and I'm not in a wheelchair, for example. Wow. Or, yeah, just a, just just immense sense of gratitude and appreciation for the ability to still do this. Um, and that, I think, helps the rehabilitation process um, from any of the surgeries I've had, is just take it slow, you know? There's no no rush. And uh, you get there or you don't, but just take every moment for that moment and appreciate the, the minute gains, even if you're starting over again on 510 like I've had to many times. Wow. Just go, okay, that, that 10C was way easier this week than it was last week. <laughs> awesome. That's yeah. great. You know, and celebrate those small victories wow. and make those a big part of your progress and not elevate yourself to some certain level that you think you always have to achieve at. Mm. And uh, yeah, just humble yourself mostly to just kind of step back from that whole, this is who I am, this is what I've done, and this is what I should be able to do mindset and be appreciative for whatever you can do whenever you can do it. And like, I notice a lot of times at the crags in between burns, people are like head down. They're on their phones. They're like not really that present in the moment, in the beauty of where they are and the surroundings and the changes in the weather and the wind and the birds that are flying around. And, you know, it's just like having that immersion and appreciation for being in the moment where you are. It, it, keeps, it keeps it fresh for me. Yeah, definitely. That was a beautiful answer. Thanks, Todd. I feel like I really need to hear that actually because... That's something 
it's kind of still fresh for me. Like I said, like it's only been in the last few years that I've had some big setbacks and people listening will likely know this story, but, and I'm like embarrassed to talk about this a little bit, but I was, you know, I don't know, this is 2017, 18. I was like 29 years old or something like that and had just climbed a couple 13 Ds and was getting close to climbing 514 at Smith. Got way too sucked into basically like fell down the rabbit hole of thinking my body needed to look a certain way to be that level of climber. So developed disordered eating patterns and then that backfired really bad. And then I gained a bunch of weight and blah, blah, blah. Coming out here in 2020, having just launched the podcast, living in this van and being able to travel around for the first time in a long time. I just remember climbing with Charlie and going to the hurricane and hoping, you know, I'd, I'd, you know, mostly recovered. My weight was stable. I was strong again. I'd, you know, gotten stronger in the gym and things like that. Coming back out here, I was like, cool, excited to get on some 13 C's, you know, maybe do something. And 13A was like in the hurricane. My first season there was like an epic project for me, mm-hmm. you know, and I was so hung up on comparing myself you know, where I was at the time with where I thought I should be, where I wished I was. And it's, I've kind of struggled with that ever since, you know, that was two years ago, three, almost three years ago now. And I'm finally kind of learning to let go of that, just appreciate the beauty of the climbs that I get to try, the challenges that they hold for me, regardless of the grade, you know, and it's, it's like embarrassing because I know the grades don't really matter. You know, I just want to climb for the experience of it, whatever, but, um, you know, easier said than done. Like it's so easy to create an identity around the accomplishments that you have under your belt and the tick list and those moments where you feel like you're on top of the world and you can do anything because your climbing's going really well. Sure, sure. Did you have times where you felt like climbing was gone forever? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, uh, when I got my a hip replaced sixteen-ish years ago. I wasn't sure if I'd ever be able to climb at the same level again, you know, it was, it was a big unknown. Um, so I was trying Golden for a moment at the time, right before surgery. That's a 14B up at the cathedral for people listening. Yep, yep. And I, I was trying to get the first ascent. It was a uh, an abandoned project that uh, they'd put the anchors in about three quarters of the way up and uh, they put a red tag on it. And it's another one of my rants is red tags. Hated them. Always hated them. <laughs> you know, they'd bolt it, put the red tag on, and then walk away for 10 years. Mm. And I felt like it got in the way of my development throughout my 20s because I was a local kid. You know, I didn't really travel much. And so Golden sat there for 10 years with a red tag on it. And and finally, I'm like, oh, this is dumb. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go work on this thing. And so I bolted it to the top, put the anchors higher, Cleaned it all up. There was actually a surprising amount of choss on that thing. Uh, rigged it all up, fixed it all up, and uh, really tried hard on it for a long time. Um, but had some setbacks, had some really wet seasons, and so it got into your in, into my head, right? And so it, uh, and then my hip started going bad um, a couple years into that process. When was this? Uh, I was like thirty. It was. Uh, right around the turn of the century, around 2000, year 2000, I started uh, ripping all these red tags off and 
and uh, rebolting these routes and like the Incredible Huck and 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 Hobitla and Golden for a Moment, those things out there. Um, uh, and yeah, it just became a really really painful process um, because my hip was going bad and high steps were just excruciatingly painful and there's a big high step in the middle of that crux so every time I'd get up there crunch crunch grimace grimace would fall and that was like my beta <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't break through that um mentally uh-huh. and it was it was super hard and then I had this surgery scheduled because my hip was like almost gone and uh it was scheduled for the summer, so I just kept on trying it throughout the summer. I'd set a fan up there with like, this battery life that has limited yeah, you, <laughs> power. <laughs> you <laughs> like, told me about this. Because this is so funny, because, like, you know, Adam Andre was, like, trying Perfecto Mundo or something in Spain and, like, had one of his, um, some member of his group, like, hanging on a static line holding a fan for him or whatever, <laughs> yeah. and it, like, blew everyone's minds, you know? And then it turns out Todd was doing this 20 years ago, but it, it didn't work quite as well, dude. Well, I didn't I didn't really have a crew. <laughs> so, yeah, I just uh, had rigged this fan up to uh, some model airplane batteries with a converter. <laughs> uh, but the batteries had a really limited amount of uh, juice, and so I'd jug up the line, flip the switch, zip down, put my shoes on, climb up, take a limited amount of rest in the no hands pod above, you know, the 13A section. And then, uh, but feel the pressure like, oh, I got to get going. That fan's running. So I, you know, start up golden, get to the undercling rest before the crux. And this happened on two or three occasions where the fan would just die as I'm staring <laughs> at it. <laughs> the blades just stop. And I'm like, well, shit, I, got, I still have to try. <laughs> but my whole mental game was just completely shot. <laughs> So needless to say, I did not send it. I logged a thousand one hangs, um, got surgery, and then Chris uh, asked if he could do it, Sharma. And so he went out there like the week after I got surgery, and he did it on a second try in 105 degree temperatures. Jesus so. Christ. And he almost so on-sighted, you know. <laughs> that is so insane. I mean, it shouldn't be surprising, but that is so insane yeah. like knowing how slippery some of that rock is up there yeah and... especially the crux it's like <sighs> not good holds man <laughs> so yeah that that was a very humbling experience but i eventually came back and and sent the route which yeah i was really doubtful that i'd ever be able yeah to, to even climb 512 again you know after full hip replacement 16 years ago how did that go was that like was that like a um like, I can imagine it being like, you know, there's like the Rocky movie version of that where Golden <laughs> is like your, your beacon of light and you're doing the whole training montage coming back from your surgery. <laughs> was it that or was it more like you never thought you would do it? You just got back into climbing because you love climbing and then found yourself at a level where you're like, oh, I'm actually climbing pretty well again. I might actually be able to try this thing again. Yeah, it was more like that. More like that. Yeah, it was more like that. Um, just kind of took it day by day. Uh the method, uh, surgery method back then, uh, it took about eight months before I was lead climbing again. Um, so, and my leg was super weak, a lot of muscle wasting. Legs still a little skinnier than the other one. Still? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Doctor said I'd never really build back the full, you know, amount of muscle I had before. So, yeah, wasn't really sure, you know, just kind of took it slow. And then, uh, about two years after surgery, I'm like, okay, I could, I can probably try hard again, and so started trying it again. But then, 
other setbacks, uh, mountain biking wrecks, uh, divorce, uh, the housing crisis of 09. Uh, lost the farm. Literally, we had an organic farm, three and a half acre farm. No way. Yeah, we, we grew organic goods. And and uh, that relationship ended along with the housing crisis, crunch, losing the house and the farm and everything. And so, yeah, a lot of setbacks, but I eventually got back on top of that thing. Yeah. And broke through that mental barrier. So, really satisfying. That's amazing. That's amazing. When did you end up sending Golden? 2012. Wow, so, so 12 years, like surgery. 12 I started later, working on it in 10 like years later. 2003. Okay. Surgery was in 2006, and then I sent it in 2012. <laughs> wow. You were like 40 at the time. Yeah. That yeah. gives me a lot of hope yeah. for things that I have kind of failed on, you know, quote, air quotes, failed and like yeah. abandoned. And maybe I just need to wait another seven years and then I'll go back to them. Right. Find that motivation. <laughs> yeah. Kind of. It doesn't have to be a straight line back mm. to the, yeah, I can definitely wander. Well, I love what you said about being present, being in the moment and just enjoying where you're at and climbing, just the gratitude that you have for being able to do it at all. But I imagine that's like a learned thing, you know? Um, that's something that's been surprisingly hard for me. Like I, I feel like in general, I'm pretty good at being present, enjoying you know, going on a walk and enjoying the sunshine and the breeze and things. And yet being a driven climber who frankly attaches a lot of that to my identity, you know, for good or for bad, whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Easier said than done. What, oh, definitely. what helps you, what helps you just in make sure that you're just enjoying climbing? I don't know what I'm trying to ask here. What helps you find that place of being present and appreciative um, when you're not climbing at your best? I think it comes down to every moment, you know, especially even when you're on the route, um, just being in the m moment of that particular movement and not get, going too far ahead of yourself to be like, oh, there's a crux coming up or the chains are so far away, right? It's just like, okay, be completely immersed in that, the minutia of that moment and trying to like work on that as like a the training mechanism to just yeah completely train your brain and your whole psyche to not get too caught up in uh, being uh, like uh, achievement driven. Um, so yeah, it's just yeah moment by moment, and it's not easy for sure. I was definitely drawn into that for a long time, like obsessing over routes and, uh, and you know, like, like the golden with the fan. <laughs> like I should have just walked away from it and, and not, not been so like driven because it, it did a number on me emotionally mm -hmm. right? and psychologically for sure to where, and maybe you can't have these kind of epiphanies without that experience right i mean you can conceptualize it you can be like oh yeah that's a great idea but uh like not actually experience that from a personal emotional perspective and then realize that something needs to be done about that if i'm gonna grow and change and enjoy this sport that i love so much and have so much passion for you know what what is it all about for you me personally is it is it the achievement is it the ego is it being able to say you know that i 
did this particular route? Or is it the experience of doing that in the moment and enjoying it and fully appreciating it for what it is physically and emotionally and spiritually, really, mm. psychologically, apart from the little tick list in your notebook, you know, or or the social media posts that you, you plan on spraying afterward. I mean, <laughs> it has to it has to be something that's fundamentally enjoyable for yourself and it's taken me a long time and a lot of years and hardship and struggles and setbacks and building back into it to to come to that point of appreciation gratitude mm. for sure that itself is a journey mm. and mm -hmm. a labor um, and it's constantly something that you have to maintain right it's not just like oh i have arrived now i'm right i'm enlightened and i'm i'm doing it for the right reasons now i mean it, it always like you can always rebound mm -hmm. psychologically back to the old patterns. So yeah, definitely a maintenance thing. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I just took some this morning. Athletic Greens has become one of my favorite parts of my morning routine. This morning I woke up through a scoop of Athletic Greens in a water bottle with about 10 ounces of cold water with a couple ice cubes in there, shook it up and sipped on that while I was making my coffee and getting ready for the day. It's super refreshing and I love the flavor. There's some apple and pear extract in there along with a little stevia to make it delicious but not too sweet and I really enjoy it. There's nothing else quite like it. It's super refreshing, it's a delicious flavor and I look forward to it almost as much as my first cup of coffee in the morning which is super fun. But why do I take Athletic Greens aside from it being delicious? Great question. Well, I think of it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. Athletic Greens has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, or superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens, and really gives you all of the micronutrients to meet your daily needs. I like to eat whole foods when it comes to my nutrition, but it's hard to eat perfectly all the time. I live in a van, I travel full-time, some places I climb are out in the middle of nowhere, and it's really hard to get good produce sometimes. I'm sure many of you can relate to that. And the thing I love about Athletic Greens is if I take one scoop in the morning, I know I'm covered no matter what happens for the rest of the day. If you wanna try it and see what it's all about for yourself, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com nugget. Again, that's athleticgreens.com nugget to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This episode is also brought to you by Petzl. I've been using Petzl equipment for more than a decade, and today I want to talk about quick draws. Rock climbing is hard, but clipping shouldn't be. Whether you're on-siding, red-pointing, or just warming up, the last thing you want to be struggling with or stressing about is clipping your quick draws. That's why in 1991, Petzl introduced the Spirit Quick Draw. They set out to build the best clipping carabiner on the market, and 30 years later, you can still find Spirit Express quick draws hanging on the hardest routes in the world. And these are my personal favorite quick draws as well, and they're the ones that I leave hanging on my own projects. I actually just purchased 20 more from Petzl, and they are beautiful, and I'm really excited to use them. Petzl makes some of the most clippable and durable carabiners on the market. Each Petzl carabiner design is tested to ensure that it can withstand 100,000 open and close cycles. That is a hell of a lot of clips. 
Whether you're climbing 510 or 514, you deserve a carabiner that's clippable, durable, and affordable. Check out Petzl's entire lineup of carabiners and quick draws at your local retailer or online at Petzl.com. Again, shop for Petzl carabiners and quick draws at your local climbing shop or online at Petzl.com. Experience the difference with Petzl. And now back to the show. What motivates you now in climbing? Because you still, you get after it. You're driven. You st- Well, I, don't, I shouldn't say you're driven. I don't know. You, you can tell me, but you still try hard things consistently. You sent us something really hard at the Diamond this summer. It seems like you're motivated. You know, you're trying to like tick the entire crag up there <laughs> this summer, um, including the obscure link-ups and new <laughs> yeah. link-ups and whatever else. But yeah. yeah, what motivates you in climbing these days? Uh, I think just that that feeling of effortlessness, you know? Uh, when you first get on something that's super hard for you, you may not even be able to do all the moves, and you just have to try really hard to kind of figure everything out and and uh, unsolve, you know, solve the puzzle, you know, break the code, so to speak, <laughs> and build your body and mind up and emotional capability to handle that pressure of that challenge that you're presenting for yourself. And then reaching that point where it feels effortless and you just float and kind of fly through it, that's just like such a beautiful feeling. And I'm always chasing that feeling. Mm. And I think that's a big motivation. And it's just uh, it's just a beautiful process, that whole process of like doubting yourself and then getting to a point where you're like supremely confident in your ability to do something that you thought was impossible maybe just weeks before mm. and then succeeding in doing that is just like really rewarding intrinsically and i think that that keeps me going for sure and then just the being able to be in these beautiful places and and all the beautiful people and friends that i've met and made along the way and get to hang out with and and spend my days with that's just like priceless i love that i love all that what are some of the most memorable <clears throat> sends successes where you really felt that that effortlessness uh planet earth for sure it was like a and i know others that have done it randy expressed this as well it was like an out-of-body experience Hmm. where i just like had this third person perspective of watching myself perform these moves effortlessly and flawlessly and find myself clipping the chain and being like did I just do that? Mm. Am I here? Where am I? Who am I? <laughs> kind of feeling. Uh-huh. Yeah, really, really surreal. But uh, yeah, that was one of them. Uh, Tusk and Clark Mountain. What's one that one? It's also a 14B, Randy Levitt route. Uh, it's right next to Jumbo Love. Mm. It's gotten a lot of press lately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's on that same same wall. Beautiful, long, overhanging white limestone at the top of the mountain. Yeah, that place is so special. Mm. Beautiful place. And Golden. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially these ones that have taken me a long time and a lot of effort with a lot of setbacks physically and just like life setbacks. And then coming back to them with a different mindset and new emotional framework and being able to succeed on, on them where they just, I'd just been so discouraged mm. and disappointed and and uh, being able to pull it off, yeah, definitely very satisfying. Have you had any that 
were really hard for you, took you a lot of work, and it was still just an absolute battle. Oh, yeah. Just like a gross fight. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And those are fun, too. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Where it's just like it could have gone either way. Yep. And just the luck was in my favor that day. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Per- Peregrination's one of those. Peregrination at the yeah. cave. Okay. Yeah. Yep. We're just not sure you're doing it until the, you're clipping the anchors. And then a couple of these routes to the diamond this last summer, mm. kind of that way. Maybe the older I get, the, the more they're like that. <laughs> the effortlessness has faded. <laughs> <laughs> I also wonder, like, I, I kind of have this um, thought that maybe certain routes lend themselves to that effortless experience more than others, you know? It's so interesting how different the lived experience of sending a route can be and how different and rewarding how different the rewards can be what am i what am i trying to say there i guess like completely different experiences and completely rewarding in slightly different ways you know mm-hmm. i think i've told this story on the podcast before but right now my two hardest red points were both at smith rock both 13d one was vicious fish one was a route in the agrigoli called crime wave couldn't have been more different experiences mm. crime wave was first and it was like you know, the first time I broke through and made it through like the hard bouldery section at the bottom mm-hmm. and got to the rest and was just like, I'm way more pumped than I've ever been trying to make any of these links. I doubt I can make it. I'll just see how high I can go, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was just like, I was so on the edge of coming off the entire way. I was so pumped, just barely <laughs> got enough back at each rest. Never screamed louder on a route. I almost vomited at the top, you know? And it was like, it was it, weirdly, it was like so present, but um, or so I was so like conscious the whole time I was climbing. I was just like, oh my God, I'm so pumped right now. I, I don't think I'm going to stick this move, but I'll try really hard anyway. And yet there was still kind of a weird sense of flow, I think, doing that. But then on the flip side, Vicious Fish, it was like this weird fluke where I had like three hung the route. I had never one hung it but it's this really technical climb broken up by really good rests. And I had like done all the sections individually and just similar thing, like broke through the bottom crux, got to the first really good rest. I took all the sections and the rests really seriously Mm -hmm. and just kind of like floated up the whole route. I was like, Oh, I finally made it to the fourth bolt. I guess I'll see how high I can go. And just like (laughs) floated my way up and was like, what just happened? Was was that (laughs) it? You know? And, I love that. Like, yeah. you know, climbing at your best can be, can, can look like so many different things. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the like common thread through that is your mental tenacity, right? Is mm. being, being ex- uh, like aware of um, the possibility and not putting that like brick wall on top of yourself. Like, oh, I'm too pumped. Mm. I can't do this take, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, I'll just try. I'll just try. I'll just keep that mental tenacity at a high enough level to where the possibility is still there. Mm. Mm-hmm. And and I think that is a big part of that satisfaction because you believed in yourself enough to try hard enough. You know, you're not putting the brakes on too soon or, you know, saving it for that perfect day or the right. perfect moment. You know, there's like, and I think that's where sport climbing 
gets a bad rap, right? Where there's no adventure aspect to it. Mm. But I think that's, you know, the same kind of mental tenacity that you have to have in situations of life or death. You know, you have to like stay present and be um, aware of the possibilities of your failing and succeeding, but stay focused on the ability to succeed. Mm. Um, we can just like easily yell take. Right. And just like, oh, I'll save it for tomorrow. It looks like it'll be two degrees cooler and the humidity will be a little lower and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just this whole scientific plan. But mm-hmm. yeah, and I think when we like push through that and we just like do it anyway, that that mental tenacity and the believing in yourself is really satisfying. Totally. And it's it's interesting. I'm going to try to describe my, because I've, I've reflected on this a lot, like what was the mindset that worked in both of those situations because there was a it was the same mindset even though the experience of climbing was very different and it you know you said believe in yourself and in a sense i think i even though i was like really really pumped or had never gotten there from the ground before i believed that it was possible Hmm. but i actually think i really doubted myself like i'm really pumped i probably won't send right now but because i'm so pumped i have to climb perfectly like i have that my only Mm -hmm. chance is to like focus on every move and trying to execute perfectly and trying as hard as i possibly can that's the only way that i have a chance right now so i'll just do that and it'll Mm -hmm. just get me as high as it gets me you know what i mean yeah so in this weird way it's like doubting myself which kind of takes the pressure or expectation out of the picture and all you're left with is like focusing on each move which keeps you present. Right, right. right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and like breaks it down to the minutia of every movement, mm-hmm. which is really satisfying too. Not letting any distractions come in and like overwhelm, like too much doubt or too much fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let that take over. You mentioned, you know, adventure and sport climbing. And I still think there's great adventure to be found in sport climbing, but I... Mm-hmm. I have to imagine that you have, have experienced a lot more objective adventure in sport climbing than most of us <laughs> going to a lot of these new cliffs that are still, you know, chossy oh, yeah. and haven't cleaned up yet. And yeah. um, everything that I've climbed on that you've put up, like, you know, it's had 10 years of traffic or whatever and lots of time to clean up. You mentioned near-death stories. Do you have any near-death mm-hmm. stories that tie into exploring and sport climbing and route development, things like that? Yeah, uh, mostly root development. Um, There were like a series of fires in the Utah hills in the early aughts uh, that kind of decimated the pinyon pine and juniper forests there, like uh, Cathedral, Wailing Wall, Diamond. These areas used to be thickly forested, Gorilla Cliff, Black and Tan. They were all kind of burned down. Some of them human-caused, a lot of them just dry lightning strikes. Had several years of that happening. And one example, it, I was bolting uh, the anti-theme wall, a route that I later called Fire Hazard. Um, I had a rope fixed from the very top of the cliff, and uh, I had slung a tree. Uh, I think it was a pinion, um, just uh, like four, or five foot webbing, and a locking carabiner. Um, and it went over kind of like a really rounded, slabby uh, edge. And then rappelled down a good 150 feet before I put in the anchors for the route. Mm. And so I had uh, been working on the route and 
there'd been a fire out there that I was aware of. So I went and hiked around to the top of the cliff and checked out the damage after the fire. Um, and my tree was still fine, checked on a couple of other trees. A friends of mine had their ropes hooked to as well. Those were fine. So I hiked back down and around, continued working on the route. Didn't finish that day. Went home, came back like two days later to finish it. And unbeknownst to me, there had been another small fire up on top. Whoa. Um, no real evidence of it driving out there. Couldn't see anything. There wasn't much left to burn up there besides the few trees that we had our ropes hooked to near the edge. Um, so it was very unlikely that anything else would burn, right? And I don't know if it was just like one single act of, <laughs> act of Mother Nature. I hesitate to say God because of my religious upbringing and my <laughs> removal of myself from that. But yeah, one little act of Mother Nature having struck that tree particularly. I don't know what happened, but finished bolting the route, jugged up. I had one last directional bolt that I had to pull out before jugging up and over the top of the cliff. And it was about 100 feet from the very top of the cliff. Um, so I transferred my um, ascenders past that bolt, you know, hooked into the bolt, waited the line, bounced on it a few times. Everything was fine. It was holding me. So I took that bolt out, started jugging up the line, last 100 feet. It wasn't completely um, dangling, right? My feet were still like on the wall a little bit, but I stopped every so often to coil up the rope. I had all my bolting gear on me, so I was pretty heavy get up to where uh, the rope kind of rounds up and over the kind of slabby lip and got to this point where I'm still hanging on the rope, pulling up slack, coiling it up, look at my anchor, and all I can see is the knot and the carabiner sitting on the rock, kind of running behind another rock. My webbing wasn't there except for one little three-inch um, strip of burnt mangled webbing. Whoa. And so I was like, had this moment of like surreal feeling of what's holding me, what's going on. Like my eyes are seeing this, but my body's experiencing solidity. I'm, I'm being held somehow. So I immediately like leaned forward, scrambled up the last little bit. So I wasn't hanging on the rope anymore. Got to where my knot was and it was just jammed behind a boulder about the size of a toaster, which was lodged against a rock about the size of a microwave. And that's what it held me that whole time. Oh my and of course, the God. friction of the rope going over the like, kind of slabby lip had displaced some of that weight as well. But I was like, there's no reason I should have survived that. You know, it would have been like a 200 foot fall to a slab, bouncing down another three, 400 feet down a steep talus oh, with all man. my bolting gear. So uh, yeah, it was definitely... Definitely a very close call. And I, yeah, immediately my knees got shaky and weak and I had to sit down, <laughs> kind of look around and like determine what I was seeing was real, what had happened, you know. And there was like a faint trace of ash where my webbing was around the tree that was just completely burnt. Hmm. And it didn't look like much else was burnt around there. My friend's ropes were still fine on the other other routes whoa yeah so it's just this really unbelievable feeling <laughs> of gratitude mostly that I was still yeah. alive yeah yeah wow man <laughs> okay i'm so i'm so curious having grown up in the church um 
What did you call, how did you describe it? You said it was the little brainwashing, some, what did you say? Oh, brainwashed from birth. Brainwashed from birth, yeah. yeah. So having having that experience, but nonetheless being exposed to these ideas of God and like a higher power and things like that, where does your mind go after having that experience? Do you have any sort of spirituality or is it just like, okay, the universe, that was this weird total fluke and I'm just grateful to be alive now or? <laughs> yeah, well, it definitely doesn't go to some bearded white guy sitting on a cloud. <laughs> <laughs> Who looks like Patrick Swayze. <laughs> yeah, exactly. White Jesus. It definitely doesn't go to white Jesus. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, and I should I should preface all this with the fact that after I left the church around 14, myself and a couple of my older brothers decided to investigate other denominations and faiths throughout the world and kind of see what they were all about, see what was going on in this whole religious mindset throughout the world. And uh, we'd get together once a week after reading these other texts and talk about them and how they related to our upbringing and the texts we were inundated with and kind of compared everything. And the biggest takeaway was that there probably is some kind of force of nature out there that's greater than us and has like some sort of influence in the creation of the cosmos um but it may not be conscious it Mm. may just be all of us collectively experiencing um a physical rendition of the intelligence of the cosmos Mm. you know but there's no like single one religion that had the the answer uh for everything there were great things to be found within every faith within every tradition Mm. and there were also a lot of terrible things mostly things that were corrupted by organizations and people wanting to exploit others beliefs and so that was the big turnoff for me particularly um with mormonism uh and its history with polygamy and and you know no no disrespect to any of my Mormon friends, but if you really look at it, at least me, when I looked at it objectively and researched the the original prophet of the church, he just seemed like another Jim Jones, David Koresh, right? If you just start the religion in the 1950s instead of the 1830s, because it was just like another white dude that wanted to sleep with as many women as possible <laughs> and kind of mm. cloaked it in the in a faith to, to get away with that. Mm. Um, and that's just my personal opinion, of course. Uh, and it comes from years of research and study, uh, objective biographies written about the guy and his own his own writings and the own history. So um, I would say, and this has become kind of a trite uh, cliche, but do your own research, you know, judge for yourself. Don't just believe what those around you tell you. And, and, and I think a lot of organized religions have this big, socializing pull, right? It's like everybody's doing it and it's just too hard to think for yourself and go your own direction, even if you have these feelings and these thoughts and this, these uh, inclinations to not go with the, the flow. Mm-hmm. And and if that and if that's for you, that's fine. That's completely fine. Like there's a lot of good to be found in those religions. Mm-hmm. And as long as you focus on those parts of it, awesome. But as we can see in Iran and all these like theocracies throughout the world, there's a hell of a lot of bad that can come from it as well. Right. So long answer. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely like makes me conscious all these near death experiences I've had. Have you had a few? Yeah, 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 definitely. (laughs) That there's, there's definitely something 
out there mm. that you can expect to encounter mm. after death. But as far as what it is, I don't think we as humankind have even scratched the surface of what it is and what's possible. Do you think it's possible for us to? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. You know, a lot of uh, these new, well, not really new, but uh, it's become more like in the public consciousness, uh, DMT experiences, people like experiencing. And it may just be like, this is one of many dimensions, right? We're just like experiencing this one little dimension here. And there's like several others that we just trying to transfer our energy over to. Um, so, but yeah, I'm sure all, all things are pretty possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I'm not going to put my faith in some charismatic con man mm. who convinces me that they have figured everything out mm -hmm. and I need to follow them. Yeah. Yeah. Even if they're right. Right. <laughs> Even if they have figured it out. It's like, okay, cool. You figured it out, but you're not you're not God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I resonate with that a lot. I mean, I've talked about this a little on the show, so I'll, I'll just give like a quick summary, but it was a long time ago and I'm, I'm thinking there's probably a lot of new listeners um, who haven't gone back and listened to uh, some of the episodes where I've talked about this, but I grew up not in Mormonism, but like in a, you know, relatively conservative Christian bubble. It was like, somewhat progressive Christianity, which is still quite conservative, of course, you know, like 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, that was my upbringing. And like you, I value a lot of the, I still value a lot of the deeper lessons that I was exposed to through that. I still consider myself quite spiritual, I think, but I just had this perspective. Even as a kid, I just remember feeling confused, like, okay, if there's this higher power, this God or this om omnipotent force in the world, whatever, like wouldn't that, and it's, and it's all loving and compassionate and empathetic, wouldn't that force, that entity, whatever, what have you, be able to work through different cultures, different languages, you know, different ways of connecting us and reaching us and you know, does it really make sense to put that in a box with our human limited human capacity to to understand things beyond our own lived experience? And it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just really interesting. Like I, I also, the older I get, the more I've kind of been unpacking the things that were really damaging about Christianity, the shame around, you know, sexuality, um, I remember being an 18 year old kid and going to school in Bellingham, Washington, which is quite liberal and progressive and making a friend with a gay person for the first time and having to reconcile as an 18 year old kid, like, do I think there's something like wrong with this person or that they're sinning? And mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm embarrassed to say that, but that's true. That's where I was at oh, at sure, the time. Yeah, I was just, yeah. I had, like you said, just been, that was my, um, I guess my brainwashing was just thinking that that was a choice and then meeting someone and having the experience of seeing that this person isn't any different from me. Like mm. why, who am I to judge them, how they feel about others? Like I want everyone to experience love and um, where was I going with that? Anyway, so I've, as an adult, I've been reflecting on all the ways that religion is damaging and my assessment of it is that all of it is human stuff. 
that we've right. put onto spirituality and the ways that we've tried to box spirituality and put rules around it and things like that. The way we, we've interpreted texts, the way that texts get put together by sure. people. Sure. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. 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 Some of it, so much of it is just interpretation and uh, man's like constant desire to manipulate and control others. Yeah. And it just seems like another tool for a lot of people to do right. that. Okay, I remember the question I was getting to. So the, the reason for me sharing all that is it makes me really curious, what are some of the ideas or values or lessons that you took from that chapter in your life when you were exploring a lot of other religions? What are some of the things that you still hold? Well, I think the tradition that really stood out to me is the the most enlightened was Buddhism. And they don't really claim that they're even a religion, you know, it's just uh, like philosophies. Mm. And so, yeah, resonated a lot with a lot of those teachings, you know, right? Just compassion for others, for yourself, for the world, um, for everything that has to do with like the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that kind of stuff, just simple human values. And when we get all caught up in the, all the rules and the, like the, uh, like restrictions, and and how people should wear clothes or their hair or that just all seems like pretty ridiculous stuff to me when it boils down to it. So yeah, it's just like the the central tenet of of all of them is just like I said, love and compassion and yeah, empathy for others and just try to maintain <clears throat> maintain that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. This is gonna feel like a right turn, but um, I think that brings us to aliens. I want to talk to you about <laughs> aliens. Well, I, you know, it's not so much of a diversion from that subject. Uh, of one of my opinions is that uh, maybe a lot, of, you know, one of the things that makes most sense about the cosmology and like the source of religion is primitive peoples trying to interpret things they saw coming down from the heavens and could they have been extraterrestrials, right? From advanced civilizations or parallel dimensions that were visiting ancient humans. Mm -hmm. and their attempts to describe their craft, you know, like a chariot with no horses or uh, a boat with no sail or oars or, you know, fire coming out of the bottom of it. There's all kinds of descriptions of that. And then just trying to describe these beings that introduced them to civilization and culture and uh, agriculture. Um, it could be that these ancient gods and the whole like fight that humanity has over which god is right were just like warring extraterrestrials that, <laughs> that were like hated each other mm. and were trying to assert dominance over the human race mm -hmm. and we deified them as well and uh and so yeah it's definitely a possibility and <laughs> to your point <laughs> a lot of uh a lot of strange lights been seen in the skies around here. Yeah, so that's why I'm so excited to talk to you because <laughs> I, and I, I mean, I think I believe in aliens just, just, the, just from a pure rational statistical point of view. Like, given the number of stars, the number of solar systems, galaxies, whatever, it just seems entirely improbable that there isn't something else out there. Whether or not they've come to Earth and have influenced our religions and beliefs and cultures, 
I don't know. I don't think I have an opinion on that at all. I haven't really thought about it too much. But the reason I was excited, Tay has told me that you have had some experiences with lights out in the Utah Hills, things you've seen. We've never talked about this, but I want to describe something that I saw. Mm. And I have a theory about what it actually is. But that for like two years, I was like, I have no idea what that, I can't <laughs> explain what I just saw. Mm. And I want to, I want to hear your thoughts on it. But this was probably... This was probably a year and a half ago. I think it was 2021 in the springtime. And I was driving out to the Wailing Wall. I was going to go camp up on that cool little ridge out there. Mm -hmm. So it's late at night. It's dark in my van. The moon's not out. And I'm driving, you know, I, I leave the pavement and I start driving uh, kind of north on that dirt road. And there's nothing out there. And I just see this ascending string of lights, almost like a string of pearls, just like slowly. It was really beautiful. It was really peaceful and graceful and beautiful. But it it was just this ascending string of lights going up into the sky. And I was just driving and like fixated by this. I was like, what am I seeing? <sighs> and it lasted for maybe two minutes, just like slowly. They were all drifting upwards. And then they just kind of slowly one by one, like faded away to nothing. And then there was darkness. <laughs> Um, and it looked like, it looked like water droplets on like a spider's thread or something, mm. a spider's web, but like ascending mm. and glowing in this really beautiful, peaceful sort of way. And I was so confused. I thought it was light reflecting off of like a telephone wire or something. I, mm. I stopped the van. I got out of the van, looked up. There's nothing above me. There's mm. no phone lines or power lines out there. Nothing no source of like rope or anything going vertically into the sky. And it didn't freak me out. It was just like, I can't explain what I just saw. I don't have sure. a, a logical explanation. So now two years later, I've heard some other people tell stories and I'm like, oh, I think maybe I have a theory now. Uh. But have you ever seen anything like that out there? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, out in that area, I've seen quite a bit. And uh, one reason a lot of sightings could be happening out there and i've talked to others who've seen stuff is uh it's all military airspace out there um nellis air force base in area 51 are really close by uh the whole airspace above there is military airspace no commercial craft are allowed above a certain elevation zone i know this from talking to a friend of mine who's getting his helicopter's pilot's license and mm. he had all the all the maps out, flight zones, who could fly here and there and where and what elevation zones. So yeah, most of that area out there is military airspace. And so a lot of it could be like top secret testing of advanced technology we're not really aware of yet, right? Uh, there's ideas that when they started doing a lot of testing out there, they were like 50 years ahead of what you know the public was aware of. Now ideas are that they're like hundreds of years ahead of what the public has any knowledge of that is so um, freaky yeah right like so cool but so freaky right <laughs> like <laughs> how advanced are we really yeah and yeah and why don't we know it all you know and it's all like defense and whatever you know top secret stuff but <laughs> yeah one, one of the coolest ones i've seen we were camping up on that that ridge it's like the four by four camp uh parking for the whaling wall uh and we were just looking out on the sunset hanging out in some chairs uh having a beer but not too many so we weren't wasted right we're climbing the next day <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's like uh there's two of us myself and my girlfriend on that one 
medication. And there were these orange lights that were just, uh, basically it looked like, um, not quite like a flare or a firework, um, because it was like a deep orange color, but they were just appearing with no like trail from the ground. Hmm. So you couldn't see that there was any kind of ascendant blast that then ended in an explosion. They would just light up. And then it wasn't like uh, an explosive firework that fades quickly. They would just stay lit like it was a lamppost coming on. Hmm. Far in the distance, right? And then one would extinguish and another one would just light up. Uh, but then they started getting a little closer. Um, and a little closer. Closer to you? Closer to us, yeah. yeah. And to where... Um, and there's something I was going to ask you if you had any like sense of distance, right? Or any perspective of how close those lights were that you were seeing. Yeah. But it got to a point where there would be three of them that were constantly um, uh, bright, right? In line, and like a line. And then the lead one uh, would extinguish. But then another one behind the third one would come in, into a brightness. And it just kind of kept doing that as it got closer and closer. And it got to the point where there's a mountain over to the north of where you're, you're sitting there on that ridge that as the crow fly, I've hiked up to the top of that mountain. It's pretty close. So like as the crow fly, it's only maybe a half a mile to a mile away. Close enough that you would hear like helicopter blades or like a jet engine or, you know, anything that close you would definitely hear, but it was completely soundless. But we could tell it was that close because we could see the reflection of the lights off the side of that hillside. It was like glowing on the trees and the brush on that hillside. So we're like, oh man, that is close. Hmm. And at that point I'm like, hey, we're over here. Come, come, come check us out. My girlfriend's like, shut up. <laughs> Be quiet. Trying to get probed. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and eventually just disappeared behind that hillside. So you could see the glow of this thing on the, on hillside. the hillside. Wow. So we had a sense of perspective of how close it was, but yeah. completely silent, absolutely no sound. Whoa. Yeah. So that's one of the coolest ones. Uh, a time how big when it got closer. Like it was pretty big. Like if it had been right next to us, the lights themselves. Uh, I'd say they'd be like 40, 50 feet in diameter, right? It was like really bright, hmm. really big. Wow. And then another time I was bolting the beaver dam wall, talking about adventurous sport climbing that <laughs> nobody ever does because I was a crazy kid when I was bolting that stuff. Uh, and it's really chossy up there. I was up there, I got finished. Uh, I was taking my shoes off on my tailgate. And this time it was just like a bright, constant white light. Um, that just came out from behind the mountainside to my left. And having driven the road up to the radio towers beyond, I knew where the radio towers are, and there were no lights on them um, at that time. And this light was below them. And same story, I could see the light beams shifting in the trees hmm. um, as the light moved out, so I could tell it was pretty close to the mountain because the beams of light would change angle as this light moved through the trees. Again, completely silent. No associated helicopter blades or anything like that. No blinking lights. You know, most planes or helicopters have like red or, you know, green flashing lights. This is just bright, constant, white, round light. And it just came out from behind the mountain and stopped. 
and I got kind of scared. I was by myself. <laughs> so I got in my truck. I started driving away. Well, I backed up and it went behind the mountain again. So I like stopped and then it came out again. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Drove down the mountain, didn't investigate. I wish I had, you know, I should have turned the other way and started driving <laughs> toward it. <laughs> Yeah. But I didn't have any of my like Ghostbuster gear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your bolting kit. You forgot your vacuum. Yeah. <laughs> Ghostbuster vacuum at home. Exactly. So, okay, that's fascinating. Mine was definitely different. It you asked like how far away I thought it was. It looked like it was very, very these were very, very tiny beads of light. Like what I expected. Cause I was watching this thing like there has to be some explanation, right? So what I expected to see was, you know, get out of the van, look up above me and like 20 feet above me, see a power line or a cable of some kind, or even like, you know, a spider's thread or something that was like catching the light or catching little beads of water or something like that. And there was just nothing there. So it, it looked, they looked very small. My theory is that this was a series of Starlink satellites being launched very far away. Mm. Cause mm. I've heard about that. Like they do these yeah. launches where they do a bunch of them at once. That could be. So that's, that's my theory. I have not investigated this or looked into like what those launches sure. actually look like, but when they ha occurred to see. If right. Yeah. Right. But that's the only thing that, that's the only like somewhat logical explanation that I so have. So it looked like it was pretty far away. Then. Yeah. Yeah. If, in that case, yeah. like they could have been, and it was, perfectly silent it could have been satellites very far in the distance yeah but just the way i mean there was like six to ten of these things and you were like looking off perfect, to the west perfect line that time if you were heading north up the road you were looking to the west no it was i think it was, north, it was straight ahead it was straight ahead of me yeah it was so right you were heading up like you took the right turn off the main dirt road and you're heading up the hill i think i was still on the main dirt road you were on the main dirt road so yeah, yeah so that was like west -ish. west okay yeah, yeah so that would have been yeah looking straight out at that at like area 51 mm -hmm. and also where they did a lot of nuclear testing back in the 50s and 60s, above ground nuclear testing, they did a ton of blasting out there. Mm. So that's been a test site forever for all kinds of stuff. And we have been test subjects here in Southern Utah. What do you mean? Uh, so they started testing uh, nuclear devices out there, I think in like 1950. Um, and it was all above ground, right? And they would actually uh, advertise it at times so people could see the mushroom clouds from mountaintops here. And they would usually wait until the wind patterns uh, were blowing towards the least populated areas, which at that time was St. George, hmm. Cedar City, this whole corridor that flowed up into Utah. Mostly they were waiting until the winds weren't blowing toward Las Vegas. Got it. Um, so yeah, we got a lot of fallout in this area. A lot, hmm. of, a lot of cancer. A lot of radiation, really sickness and diseases associated with it. So uh, yeah, it's actually a group called the Downwinders that uh, have lobbied Congress to um, get remuneration for the damage caused wow. by all this above ground nuclear testing that occurred until like '69, I want to say, almost 20 years of testing out there. Hmm. Yeah. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, crazy stuff. I saw yeah. this old cartoon advertisement um, to bring people as a tourist attraction to the top of Mount Charleston outside of Las Vegas. There was a 
guy in a uh, evening, like a tuxedo and a gal in an evening gown, uh, toasting champagne, uh, while like a mushroom, a nuclear mushroom cloud is going off in the distance. It's like, come, come to the top, top of Mount Charleston and see the nuclear blast. You know, it's just like a tourist attraction. Mm -hmm. But uh, they did a lot of that kind of testing, and then they had subjects that were like, you know, mil mostly military personnel that were uh, subject to this testing and studied later for the effects uh, on it. They were like sitting in bleachers a certain distance away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lots of crazy stuff happened out there. And and who's to say, you know, they're still not testing all kinds of stuff. They actually tested nuclear devices underground until 1992. So well until, you know, I was in college. Here. Wow. Yeah. So can't trust what's going on out there. We have, we have no idea, really. Yeah, yeah. We may find out years and years later Yeah. what these strange lights are. <laughs> Fascinating. I love it. Okay, well, thank you. I was very curious to hear your story. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Still, We still have no idea what Todd's uh, lights were. Nope. Um, no idea. Yeah. Definitely unidentified. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe one day. If any of you have seen stuff like that around here, let us know. I'd be fascinated to hear more stories. Maybe we can feature like a little listener um, UFO sightings thing. We can do a little podcast. That'd be cool. <laughs> That'd be really fun. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's 1220. You need to go in about 10 minutes? Mm, yeah, probably. Okay. Great. I've got a bunch more stuff we could talk about that. We'll have to save it for another time. Let's wrap up by talking a little bit more about your climbing. I'm I'm curious why you've never left St. George. Mm. Um, what is it about this place, and what is it that like? Do you do you feel like you have more left to do? You know, um, unfinished business or things like that, or is it just? Now that's top secret information. I'm not sure, I can divulge. <laughs> Any of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got new crags. We keep finding new stuff, you know. That's amazing. That's one of the reasons. Uh, I've just been so uh, passionate about route development. And this is uh, one of the only places, like, you can climb year-round comfortably at different elevation zones. And uh, we just keep finding more and more stuff. It mm. just, like, doesn't go away. So, yeah, that's kept me here a lot. Like, I gave up a trip to Europe once, a trip to go to Waco once because I was just too psyched to <laughs> continue bolting stuff that I had found here. That's awesome. I didn't want to leave it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's one big reason. I have a lot of family here too. And, you know, love my family, love being close to them. And yeah, just year round climbing here is fantastic. Bunch of different rock types. Um, and you know, up till now, it's been like a pretty quiet, small town. It's getting bigger now. It's like a bona fide city now. But yeah, when I first started, it's like probably less than 10,000 people oh, in wow. town. You know, it's like you could count the number of climbers on one hand. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely grown. And that that kind of turns me off a little bit. I do like the smaller town, small community quietness, being able to you know, run your errands without getting in several possible traffic accidents <laughs> right. along the way. So yeah, right. that's kind of like got me down recently. But uh, yeah, that's one of the biggest reasons. It's just small. It's super beautiful. Year-round climbing is is awesome, and we keep finding new stuff to to develop. 
that's awesome. I'm so excited to see what you're working on. Um, one of these days, whenever you're ready to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Five to ten years. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think your hardest climbing is still ahead of you? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was one hanging a route a couple of years ago, and I tore my shoulder on it, had to get surgery. Um, and I feel like I'm getting back to where I could put some good effort in. I started working on it a little bit last year, got a one hang, but then got dropped and had a ground fall and it just oh. took away my motivation on that thing. So I stopped going. Um, but Shit. I'm hoping to kind of regain some of that motivation. And I didn't know about get that. Get back on it. Yeah. Is this, is this an established route that I would know about? Yeah. Yeah. It's in the Hurt Cave. Uh, fly to the Concords. Got it. I was getting like two or three moves from the end. Um, wow. Nice, man. Yeah. Closer, 14C. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Feeling stronger and stronger. And I tore my shoulder on it. Super in, infraspinitis, torn labrum. It was mm. like completely destroyed. Ah, so had ouch. to have surgery on it. But I was so close to sending, I just put a bunch of KT tape on it and kept trying <laughs> until the surgery date. <laughs> but it did work. I yeah. wasn't successful. So yeah, definitely would like to get back on onto that thing. Yeah, I definitely feel strong enough. It just depends on the amount of time you want to put into it and, you know, the, the effort, like, psychological and mm, especially mm-hmm. after getting dropped last season yeah, yeah. damn I didn't yeah know i did actually that. did my best one hang on it the burn after i got dropped i was all like, <laughs> cut up and had all, like, taped up and i was just like full of adrenaline pissed off yeah so i blasted through and got my best one hang on it but then after that i was just like it got to that point where i fell and got and hit the hit the ground and i just freeze up and and get all like scared mm. So understandable. Definitely have to break through that mental barrier again. I mean, I can kind of see that it's a really steep route. You're kind of close to the ground for the first few bolts. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And there's a crux there. Gotcha. Near the yeah the start. Mm-hmm. Which shouldn't be a problem. My my blader just had a worn out grigri. Oh really? Um, yeah. So I definitely check everybody's. Oh P A yeah before P S A climb now. Yeah. Check your grigri. Mm-hmm. Skinny ropes. Mm. Worn out grigris do not make a good keep that date. hand on the belay, keep that uh, belay hand on, uh, folks. Uh-huh. Yeah, even with the grigri, that's a good reminder. Definitely, I was lucky. Mm. I was lucky. Yeah, if I'd because it's like a, it's craggy there, so I like swung out behind the promontory, but dropped like three or four feet below. If it were flat ground or just like rocky ground, I would have cratered hard. Mm. But as it was, I fell behind it and below it and swung into it hard, so I cut up my hand pretty good and bruise my palm but it could have been a lot worse but just having that experience like it did more damage to my psyche than anything else mm-hmm. so yeah i would freeze up at that point after that so gotcha i would definitely like to break through that barrier sweet i'll be rooting for you thanks man yeah excited <laughs> to see you. hopefully i get to see you try it i'm going to come back here in february and i'll be climbing up there so yeah i'm psyched uh yeah i'll be i'll be back on it i'll be climbing in greece for most of January, but then. Okay. Yeah, I'll be back on it. Sweet. Yeah. And then I want to end with this. You, I, I loved everything you said earlier about your gratitude for the sport, your love for the sport, and just um, gratitude for being able to still climb and um, how that has sustained you. But we all want to be Todd Perkins someday. You know, even if you're listening <laughs> to this and you don't know that you want to be Todd Perkins. Trust me, you do. You want to be 50 years old and you want to be climbing like Todd Perkins. Do you have any other thoughts? Any like 
tips for me or, or for people listening? Like, um, how have you been able to sustain such a high level of climbing for so long? I mean, this could be a very long conversation, but you know, there's yeah. there's so much emphasis on training these days. It seems like you have a few kind of staples that you stick to, but mostly spend time rock climbing or maybe I'm missing mm -hmm. something, but mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever comes to mind, any things that have really helped you, just your body, your mind stay healthy and... I think just trusting your intuition, mm. you know, and, and not uh, not trying too hard at any one thing and just mm. always uh, having the ability to step back and say, okay, don't push it too hard. I've made that mistake a bunch in the past. Hmm. And had to learn from it that uh, we all want to achieve this or that in a certain time frame. But if it's not working out, it's not happening, you have to like trust your intuition and be able to step back from it, reassess, maybe not try the project as often as or frequently. Try to round yourself off with trying other things, have side projects as well to keep the mental game going. Uh, if you just like, completely assail one thing over and over again can not only weaken your like you know all over like body strength but mentally too you can get just get dragged down like you know like the sense of purpose goes like why am i doing this mm. to climb this route and fall in the same place over and over again mm. so i think it helps to kind of trust that intuition knowing to step away knowing to go do some mileage somewhere else or put focus on a side project and not get too wrapped up in like having to have that success within a certain time frame on, on your main project. And then just listening to your body, um, knowing what it needs, when, when you need to kind of cool off. And, and rest is like so important, so important, getting plenty of sleep. Mm. That's probably the, one of the most important things. You had a rest day a couple of days ago where, you know, I came out in the morning. I was like, oh, what are you up to today? And you're like, oh, it's a rest day. You know, I was like, oh, cool. Like no work, no climbing, nothing. And you're like, yeah. I, you know, I was curious, like, do you do that very often? And you kind of said like, I just, you know, do it when I need to do it, whatever. But um, I think your entire day was like, you did some yoga in the sun on the back porch. You took a nap, then you did some laundry, took another nap, went to bed early. I was just like, <laughs> damn, this guy's... He killed the rest day. <laughs> <laughs> right. Totally said that. That was like a 514 rest day for sure. <laughs> I haven't had a rest day like that in a long time. Yeah. And it's completely my fault. Like I could. I just, you know, yeah, like, well, yeah. I could be doing this and busy. We have this busy mindset that we mm. like, feel like we always have to stay busy and productive, especially as Americans. Yeah, yeah. Right? Or we feel guilty. Well, I, I love everything you just said about, um, you know, putting your ego aside and being patient and not forcing things because that is so... Um, it's so the antithesis of what we value as a climbing culture, right? Like those stories of pushing through and persevering and, you know, sticking with it when life sucks and you hate your project and going any, you know, it's like, because mm -hmm. we hear a lot of those stories and they often, sure. um, you know, hard projects necessitate usually some amount of that. Oh, for sure. And it can be successful. It can be good. Right. But then how much do you hate life? Right, right, and right. How much do you enjoy the success mm. afterward, right? And you've done both. Like you've been very successful in your climbing with without just crushing yourself. And um, it's a cool reminder, I guess, for me that it nothing needs to happen right now. Right. You know, because I tend to do that. I'm like, 
oh my God, I want to do that. I want to do that. I like, haven't even climbed at this cliff yet. And like, I have to do all these things so I can finally go over there yeah. and try that thing. And just like each, each climb in its own time. Yep. Take each day for what it is. For sure. Well, thanks, Todd. Yeah. Thank you. This has been really fun, man. Yeah, it's likewise. one of my favorite things about the podcast is that it just gives me an excuse to, to, you know, do research on people. Like if I had done all this research and was asking you these questions in the kitchen without a podcast, it'd be really weird, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like right. such a fun chance to get to sit down and, and chat about all these things with you and really get to know you. So. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate you taking the time and it's been super fun to get to know you a bit this trip and look forward to climbing with you more and uh, have fun in Greece. Thank you. And yeah. good luck on the project. Thank you. Yeah. Have fun in Waco. Thanks. Yeah. I'm psyched. Absolutely. I'll see you back here in February or March, I think. Sounds good, man. Sounds right. good. Anything else? Anything you want to share that we didn't cover before I let you go? Uh, I just say like big takeaway, uh, what I want people to think about. Yeah. I did ask you actually, I, I forgot to ask this question. What is something you wish people spent more time thinking about? Something besides climbing and something besides themselves, right? Like get out of your downward spiral that it can be sometimes mm. of like obsessing over, over the sport and your performance and just spend some time thinking like when I come home from a climbing day, I'll study quantum physics or astronomy or something like the James Webb telescope, finding all these new you know, galaxies out there 10 times more than we thought were out there. You know, things like that. Keep your mind active in other areas. And I think you'll find that it, it translates to a lot more enjoyment in your chosen obsession of mm. sport. Love it. Thanks, Todd. Thank you, man. It's been fun. Yeah. All right. Sweet. That's it. <laughs> that was great. That was fun. Hey friends, before I let you go, a few quick reminders. First up is the Access Fund. If you have a little bit of spare cash, Black Diamond is going to match all individual contributions to the Access Fund up to $80,000 from December 5th through the 19th. So if you're hearing this in that time frame and you have a little extra cash, there's never been a better time to donate to the Access Fund. Go to accessfund.org donate or click on the link right there in your podcast app by scrolling down to the notes. And donate whatever you can. Every dollar helps. Also, don't forget to check out Athletic Greens. I think of this stuff as all-in-one nutritional insurance when I'm on the road. I love it. And I just had some today. Head over to athleticgreens.com nugget to get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Also, don't forget to check out Petzl. Shop for Petzl carabiners and quick draws at your local climbing shop or online at petzl.com to get the clippability and durability you deserve. My favorites are the Petzl Spirit Express Quick Draws. Just saying, they're awesome. Don't forget to check out Crimped. Head over to crimped.com or find the Crimped app in the app store to try it for free. And if you love it, consider signing up for Crimped Plus to unlock the entire catalog of workouts, to build your own custom training plans and unlock skill templates that will help you turn those weaknesses into strengths. That's crimp.com or find the Crimped app in the App Store for iOS or Android. And finally, don't forget to check out Fizzy Vantage. 
I take their supercharged collagen every day, and I really think it helps. Fizzy Vantage sources the highest quality ingredients in all of their products, so you can't go wrong. And if you use code NUGGET15 at checkout, you'll save 15% off your next order. And that is it, my friends. Thank you for listening to the very end. I appreciate you guys as always. I hope you have an amazing week and we will see you next time. Like we do it.